Psalm number 25, one of David's psalms. It's one of the acrostic psalms. The most famous acrostic psalm is Psalm 119. But this is another of the acrostic psalms, which simply means that in the Hebrew, every verse begins with the, uh, the, a Hebrew letter of the alphabet that corresponds and steps through the alphabet, uh, which could have been done for memorization purposes. It may have been arranged in order to help people memorize the Word of God. Memorizing the Word of God is an important thing for us to do as God's children. Uh, others have speculated that the acrostic psalms were arranged acrostically in order to uh, emphasize a pattern of truth that uh, bears importance into our lives. Well, we don't know for sure, but we do know that in the Hebrew it is acrostic. It doesn't appear that way in our English language, but it was in the language that the Holy Spirit breathed this as David recorded it. Psalm 25, verse number 1. I can hardly read it without without putting it to rhyme and starting to sing the little chorus, the scripture chorus that uh, so many of us know. The Bible says, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth nor my transgressions, according to thy mercy. Remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment. And the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease. His seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And he will show them his covenant. Mine eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Psalm 25 in your Bibles this morning. A brand new year here in northern Virginia and for our lives and families. And uh, we want to give some consideration uh, to this new year and some things that are important. I don't know if your schedule has been like mine, probably has. I'm still trying to figure out how to get by Christmas and uh, here we are uh, approaching a week into the new year. And uh, time just does crazy things to us uh, during the holiday season. Uh, but you know, in all the busyness of life through the holiday season and uh, into a new year, we really need to 
make sure we don't miss the value to our personal lives of starting a new year. Starting anything new, a new day, every day is a new day, uh, a new year. These are important times in our lives to, to reflect upon God, who He is, and, and His importance in our lives. And this particular psalm is a psalm that I've been reading and meditating on over the last few weeks, and uh, that has been a blessing to me. And, and a few weeks ago, as I was meditating on this psalm, I felt impressed of God that it would be a good place for us to start off the new year giving some consideration to this amazing psalm of David. I even went back into my, uh, as far back as I could look into my, uh, my records, and, and, and I don't think I have ever preached from Psalm 25 in 40 years of ministry, and so uh, uh, I'm going to try it out on you and see if it's any good. We're going to do a little bit of a Bible study this morning. We're going to look at the psalm as it unfolds and... And I hope that the end result of this will not be so much anything that we would get out of this psalm in the next little while, but that you'll go home in the early stages of this year, early days and weeks of this year, and, and you'll read and reread this psalm with the, with the little handout that you just received, and that you'll think through, pray through this psalm and and let the Spirit of God minister to your heart as He has to mine as I've read and, and meditated on this psalm. I mentioned earlier that it's an acrostic, one of the acrostic psalms, which simply means that there, this psalm was laid out in a way that it enabled people perhaps to memorize it or to think through a flow of truth that was, that, that the arrangement of it and the way it it unfolded, had particular value to people's lives. And, and so I, I pray and that, that this will be something you'll take home and, and get much more out of this in the days and weeks ahead than what you get out of this this morning. There's a discernible rhythm to the order of the way this psalm is laid out. And I and I put some thoughts on the little paper to try to capture that for you so that if you do go home and read this in the coming days or weeks that that you'll be able to map out this rhythm of truth and interaction with God when you read and 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 uh, spend time in this psalm you begin to realize that the psalm begins with seven verses addressed to God, which means it's a prayer. And the last seven verses of the psalm is also addressed to God as a prayer. So the psalm in its first seven verses and its last seven verses, there are two separate prayers, very different prayers that are addressed to God. The eight verses that are in between those two Prayers follow a discernible rhythm. There's three verses, then one verse, then three verses, then one verse. When you read through and look at the flow of truth, you discern the relationship of those three verses, verses 8, 9, and 10, as a unit, followed by an expression in one verse, and then three verses that are a unit followed by one verse, 
and then, and then seven verses of prayer. The, the eight verses in the middle are very significant. The eight verses in the middle in the two, three verse, one verse sections first focus on the character of God and the actions that God takes because of who he is. And then the second set of three verses, one verse, records man's view of God and God's blessings that flow into the life of the one who has that view of God. And right in the middle of those eight verses, there's one verse in the middle, verse number 11, that is also a prayer. So you have seven verses of prayer. You have eight verses talking about the character of God and what he does because of who he is. And man's view of God and the blessings that are available to the man that has that view of God. And right in the middle of that is a prayer. Now, we know that we ought to pray all the time, right? As Christian people, we pray without ceasing. We're to be in communion with God all the time. We don't have ritualistic times of prayer. We have a life that breathes prayer. That our communion with God is... Is a continual communion. He's always on our mind. Whatever we're doing, we're doing what we're doing. Thinking about how this impacts God. How God impacts this. How this forwards God's plan. How this is a part of God's plan for my life. And so we're constantly, as Christian people, everything we do, every, everything we say, every place we go, everything is, is plugged into the, the puzzle of life that when all put together has the face of God on it. We... Pray without ceasing. And we also know that there are, there are distinct times when, when a prayer is made that is a distinct time of prayer. We know that Daniel prayed morning, noon, and night. He had a special season of prayer to start off his day, in the middle of his day, and to end his day. It's interesting to me when I look at the flow of truth in this psalm. How that the psalm begins with what would be typical of a prayer that starts a brand new day. Or for us, a brand new year. But then life begins to happen. And there's one short statement of prayer right in the middle. It's almost like a midday prayer in the midst of life happening to me. And then you get to the end of the psalm and it's like the end of the day prayer before you drift off to sleep. A morning prayer, a midday prayer, and an evening prayer. And each of them are different because each of them fit into the sequence Of starting something new and then dealing with life as it happens to me. And so I want us to kind of bounce through this this psalm and try to pick up this flow of truth and 
and then leave it with you to go home and to study and to enjoy spending time with God as you begin a new year. The, the bluff, if you've already seen it, is, is that when life happens, keep your eyes on God. When life happens to you, keep your eyes on God. And that's what we, what we glean from the fact that the psalm begins and ends and has in the middle of it a distinct prayer. Looking at God as life is happening to me. Well, let's, let's uh, open this up and, and, and think through this just for a moment. In verses 1 to 7, we have what would be a prayer at the beginning of something new. We could call this a morning prayer or a January prayer, a New Year prayer. The psalmist David talks to God and expresses to God, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. I can see David as he gets up to start a new day and it's, everything's fresh. The, the uh, sun is peeking over the horizon. The birds are chirping. It's a beautiful day. And, and, and all the opportunities and possibilities are in front of him. It's time for a morning prayer. And what is a morning prayer like? What is a prayer that starts a day like? What's a prayer that starts a year like? What's a morning prayer? A morning prayer is filled with hope. A morning prayer is filled with anticipation. A morning prayer is looking out over the possibilities with their eyes fixed on God. The morning prayer expresses worship in verse number one. In verse number one, oh Lord, under thee do I lift my soul. God, I'm here for you. I lift myself to you, oh Lord. It's a new day. It's a new year. I lift my soul to you. And he worships God. He looks up. He feels elevated as he lifts up his soul, his being, his mind, his emotions, his will, his heart. What's important to him, what's vital to him. He lifts his very soul up to God in worship. And he trusts God. He's not in control. I'm not in control of my day. I don't know what's going to happen today, but I trust God. Oh, my God, I trust in thee. It's all lying out in front of me and I don't have control of it. But God, I trust you because I know you do have control of it. A prayer that so lifts up to God is a prayer that is desirous, is hungry for God. David cried out in verse number four. He said, show me thy ways. God, show me what you want out of my life today. Show me the path you want me to 
walk today. God, show me how I can be in your ways. Show me. Oh, Lord, teach me. God, teach me your paths. Teach me how you think. Teach me what's important to you. Teach me what is on your desires for me today. Teach me how to think like you. To love what you love. To hate what you hate. To want what you want. God, would you teach me? I'm hungry. I want to know God. I've gotten beyond my selfishness. I've gotten beyond my ego. I've gotten beyond life is all about me. God, it's not about me. I have lifted up my soul to you in worship. I've expressed that I trust you. And God, now I'm hungry for you. I'm hungry for you. I want you to show me your way. I want you to teach me your paths. And then in verse number six and seven, he wants God to have a selective memory. Do you want God to have a selective memory of you? Are there some things about you that you hope God doesn't remember? He says, God, would you please have a selective memory when it comes to me? I've not been all I ought to have been. God, I want you to remember. Remember thy tender mercies and loving kindness. But God, I want you to not remember the sins of my youth. You know, the sins of youth are particularly problematic. God, I wasn't smart enough to know to come in out of the rain. Man, why did I make those decisions? Why did I get involved in that? Why did I do that? What was I thinking when I watched that? What was I thinking when I agreed to do that? God, why? what in the world was wrong with me? You know this. You remember the sense of your youth? Some of you that have been around a while. Hey, man, I wish someone would have just sat me down and had a good talk to me. I wish someone would have stopped me. God, would you please, God, would you not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions? God, would you be merciful and good by not remembering the sins of my youth? So here we have a morning prayer, a prayer that is anticipating, a prayer that's hungry for God, desiring God, fresh expressions of prayer. That are new in the morning as I look over a new day or a new year. The morning prayer. The morning prayer launches me onto a day or a year of life. And a morning prayer prepares me to consider God. And so in verse number 8... David said, good and upright is the Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Here is an expression about, he's not talking to God anymore. He's not talking to God in prayer. He's now talking about life. And his morning prayer left him in a state of mind where his focus was the character of God. Do we think about God? Is His character on our minds? Are we conscious of who He is at the beginning of a day, 
at the beginning of a year. The character of God. David, having prayed a prayer of worship, of trust, a prayer of hunger and desire, a prayer that just appealed to God with great hope and anticipation, now leaves him in a state of mind that he's thinking about what? The goodness of God. He says, God, you are good. You are upright. You are a good God. And he begins to think about the character of God. Now, I want you to learn something that I learned as I was meditating, reading this, studying this. The actions of God flow out of his character. That's an important truth. You will never understand the actions of God if you don't understand the character of God. And that's why on our prayer sheets, and I apologize, we had printer problems, and so the prayer sheets didn't, didn't uh, make it out today. First Sunday of the year, we don't have any prayer sheets. But that's why on our prayer sheets, every week when you get a prayer sheet, there is listed on that prayer sheet of a rotating list, the attributes of God. Every week, you are given a couple of new attributes of God to think about. You're given a new name of God, a name of God that identifies a part of his character and who he is. And you receive those new attributes and that new character of God every week. Why? It's a part of trying from my heart as your pastor to your spiritual development and growth. It's one thing I do to try to help you Think of God every day. To develop the habit of life. Of thinking about the character of God. And you can't think about the character of God if you don't know the character of God. And so as you meditate through your prayer life each week on those attributes. And that name. And then the next week some new attributes and a new name. What, are, what am I doing over the week in and week out living of life? I'm trying to help you know God. To know who He is. To know what He's like. To know His character. To know His attributes. Why? Because when you come to a new day or a new year, your mind needs to be focused on the character of God. And to do that, you've got to know the character of God. And because God is who He is, He does what He does. You understand that's a part of your being created in the image of God. Because you do what you do because of who you are. And the way to help a person is not just to merely try to change what they do. It's to get into their heart and change who they are. Because change only happens from the core of a person's being. That's why religion doesn't work. Religion just changes the outside. Without dealing with the core issues of the heart. But the word of God does work. Because God's word reaches the heart. The word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. It pierces even to the heart. Heart, to the core, to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
The Word of God reaches into not what you do. It reaches down to who you are. Because you do what you do because of who you are. And God's Word has to address who you are at the core of your being in order to change you to become who God wants you to be. And you can struggle through your whole life trying to shape up the outside, make the outside look good. But if in your heart you are pitted against the holiness of God, what is done on the outside will be short-lived and shallow in its accomplishment. So the psalmist David, he, he has prayed his morning prayer with great enthusiasm, with great hope, with great excitement. He has worshipped and expressed his trust. He has, he has appealed to God. I'm hungry for God. God, t- teach me. Show me. Work in my heart. Even to the point where he was honest enough to invite God's selective memory. And God, remember, but don't remember. And so after his morning prayer, he's ready to start the day. And he starts the day focused on the character of God. The character of God. He's a good God. And so look at what comes out of the character of God. Verse number 8. Therefore. Now you'll notice as you, as you study through this, you'll notice the word will. Verse number 8. Because God is good and upright, therefore will he. Verse number 9. Will he. Middle of verse number 9. Will he. These are expressions of the actions of God. Because of who God is, this is what God does. This is the character of God in action. What is the character of God in action? The character of God in action, you know what God does? Because of who He is, God teaches sinners in the way. God confronts sinners about their sin. God teaches sinners what's wrong with what they're doing. God teaches sinners why it is that they're messing up. Because God reaches to the heart and deals first. You'll find this all through the Bible. God first deals negatively before he deals positively. He first strips down before he builds up. He first cuts to the heart of rebellion. Before he can have repentance and a new heart and a new life. So the action of God is that God deals with sinners about their sin. That's the way God is. Because of who he is. And then, not only does he... And by the way, guess what he teaches them? What do you think God might teach sinners in the way? Well, try start out with the Ten Commandments. That's a good place to start. God teaches sinners in the way. And then notice, God does, that's not all God does. Verse number 9 speaks of the meek. Twice he says, the meek will he, the meek will he. What does the word meek mean? Who's meek? The word meek is one of those amazing English words. We, it, 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 it rhymes with weak. And so, so many people think meekness and weakness are kind of similar. I've often thought Jesus was meek when he took the cords and he tied them into a whip and he drove the money changers out of the temple. He was meek in that moment. 
Because meekness is not weakness. You know what's at the core of the word meek? What is it? The core of the word meek is yieldedness. Yieldedness. You know who is being described here in this verse? God approaches the sinner about their sin. Then he approaches the meek, those who have yielded to him. Those who have accepted his truth about their sinfulness. And who have been saved. They have yielded to God. And they are meek before God. Not fighting for what they want. They're yielded. Not fighting for the way I want it. Yielded to God. To the meek, what does God do? To the meek, verse number 9 says, The meek will he guide in judgment. Wow. Do we ever live in a world today where nobody has any judgment? We're told why in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 tells us that when a culture spirals out of control morally, it gets to the point where he describes the thinking process as a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind. The word reprobate means it doesn't work. A mind that doesn't work. A mind that can't be logical. A mind that can't see what is plain for everyone to see. A reprobate mind. To the meek, the people that yield to God, that says, God, I believe you. I'm hungry for you. To the meek, God will guide them into the ability to discern and pass righteous judgment on what's good and bad, right and wrong. That's what God does because he's a good God. He helps yielded people to be able to learn how to discern. We need that today. Dads need that today. Moms need that today. Teenagers need that today. Children need that today. We need God to guide us in how to discern right and wrong, good and bad, better and best. And that comes because God is good. And early in a new day, focused on the character of God, I know that I have, if I have sin in my life, God is going to talk to me about that. And if I yield to God, he's going to guide me in the ability to discern. But not only that, to the yielded, to the meek, he will teach his way. And then he makes the expression. That's the three verses, verse 8, 9, actually verse 8, 9, 10 come together. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. To those that are yielded and following him, God leads us on paths of mercy and truth. And aren't you glad they go together? Mercy and truth from God. And then there's a prayer. There's a prayer. Now, he's already mentioned in his morning prayer, God, don't remember what I did when I was a kid. <laughs> Forget that, Lord. And then he acknowledged that because of who God is, he's going to talk to me about my sin. That's, just, that's the way God is. That's who he is. He's a God who talks to sinners in the way. And all of a sudden, he, one little expression of prayer, 
maybe midday, maybe at noon, he says in verse number 11, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. As I see the unfolding of this psalm, it seems to me that the psalmist is is not handling things that are happening very well. Maybe he got mad and cursed out the guy that cut him off on 95 as he was trying to get to work. Life began to happen to him. And God begins to talk to him. And in the middle of the day, he blurts out, Oh God, I am a great sinner. God, I am messing up. Would you have mercy on me? Which brings us to the second little triad in in the middle of the psalm which is man's view of God. Now, look at verse number 12. Man's view of God. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Who fears God today? Who fears God today? This is man's view of God. And, and what God blesses your life with is going to be very closely related to how you view Him. Rand Hummel gave us, just a few weeks ago, the most profound definition of the fear of God that I've ever heard when he was preaching here just a few weeks ago. He defined the fear of God as respecting God's holiness. Respecting God's holiness, which means loving everything God loves and hating everything God hates. Holiness is a two-sided sword. Holiness is a division between right and wrong. Holiness is a A separation from wrong unto right. The fear of God is a respect for that holiness. Such that I love everything that God loves. And I hate everything that God hates. The fear of God is the respect for God's holiness. And secondly, it's a wholesome dread of displeasing Him. Those two are very intricately twisted together. I so respect God's holiness... Which means I know there are things God doesn't approve of. And there are things God demands. And I have such a respect for that. That I dread being on the wrong side of that division. Between right and wrong. I dread being in a place where I'm not pleasing to God. That's what the fear of God is. Now, you take a person who respects God's holiness and has a wholesome dread of displeasing God. When you have a person who has that view of God, they view God through the lens of appreciating His holiness and being afraid of being displeasing to Him. That kicks in the blessings of God. Look at them. Verse number 12. Who is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he, God, teach in the way that he, God, shall choose. God will teach you what he wants you to know. That doesn't mean a lot to the person who doesn't care about what God thinks. But for people that that care about how God views things, that's huge. That's huge. If I fear God, God will teach me what he wants me to know. Verse number 13. His soul shall dwell at ease. I like that. His soul, you know, a person that fears God 
One of God's blessings to that person is that their soul shall be at ease. They'll enjoy life. In verse number 13, he said, God will bless your family. His seed shall inherit the earth. The seed, your seed will be prosperous. Verse number 14. I like this one. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. He tells you his secrets. Isn't that cool to be on the inside story of someone who's important? Isn't it really cool to have someone that's really important and they, and they give you the inside scoop that nobody else knows? You know the secrets. God will tell you secrets. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that God reveals his secrets to his children. We know how the world's going to end. We know that it doesn't matter how much oil you burn, you're not going to cause this world to go out of existence. We know that. You know how we know that? Because we know that God said he's going to burn this world into a cinder one day. And it's you're not going to destroy the world one moment before God's ready to destroy it himself. We know that. We know that because we read the Bible. And in the Bible, we have the secrets of God conveyed to us of what God's doing and what he's going to do. The secrets of God are revealed to those who fear God. And then verse number 14 also says that he will, he will show them his covenant. There's a lot to meditate on that. That covenant relationship with God in salvation. God will show you what that's all about and how to live in a relationship with him. So David expresses in verse number 15, mine eyes are ever towards the Lord. I want that kind of a God in my life. The God who can give me those blessings. If I view him with the fear of the Lord. A God who acts the way he acts because of who he is. I want that kind of God in my life. And that brings us. To the evening prayer. The evening prayer, which I didn't read in the two times I've read this to you this morning. I've ended with verse 15 both times. I didn't read the, read the evening prayer. The evening prayer can be summarized in one word. Help. Help. Turn thee unto me and have mercy on me. I'm desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. We're talking about life happens. And David, as life has happened to him, he's desolate, he's afflicted, he has trouble. Oh, bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my pain. Forgive my sins. Consider my enemies. They're many and they hate me with a cruel hatred. Oh, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait on thee. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. You could summarize the evening prayer with one word. Life has happened to me. And I didn't plan for this to happen. When I started the day, I was full of hope. 
When I started the year, I was full of, of hope and worship and trust. And then life happened. God, I know you're a good God. I know you, you do what you do because you're good. And God, I've, I've tried to fear you. I've tried to respect your holiness. I've tried to, to be, be afraid of being on your displeasure. God, I, I know you are who you are. And, and, and God, I'm, I'm just, God, I got trouble. And so when I lay my head down at, on my pillow at night, my prayer is very different than what it was in the morning. Because a morning prayer doesn't know what's going to happen. A morning prayer is full of trust and hope. A midday prayer says, God, it ain't going so good today. Help. But by the evening, that help has been bold, underlined, italicized with a string of exclamation points. God, I'm in trouble. Would you please help me? When life happens, what do you do? You keep your eyes on God. You go to bed at night saying, help. And you wake up in the morning saying, God, it's a brand new day. And I'm looking to you, God, with worship and trust and hope and confidence in you. And as life happens to me, God, I'll take it one step at a time. As life happens to me, I'll deal with it one day at a time. And I'll keep turning to you. And I'll look at you in your character. I'll look at you in your promise of blessings. And I'll appeal to you for your help. And I'll get through life happening. And start a brand new day. Tomorrow. Lord willing, tonight I'm going to give the conclusion of this sermon. The conclusion of this sermon is a story from the life of Joseph. And how time reinterprets your life, your past. The difference between living through something and later on looking back at something are extremely different when something's involved that we'll talk about tonight.